Our scripture today comes from the book of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. If you have the blue Bible in front of you, that is page 566. So again, Luke 12, verses 13 through 21. If you have a different Bible or app, you'll see this is a lot of red words. Red words, the words of Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. All right. Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Talking about money. Let me diffuse uh, some of the tension in the room by just uh, kind of setting us up. And um, it's kind of just a little precursor to the text why we're talking about this and why we're not talking about this. I know that some of you are like, great, you know, I don't go to church very often. And of course, the Sunday I come, I'm talking about money. I brought my neighbor, I brought my friend, I brought my spouse, I brought somebody, you know, who doesn't go to church and we're talking about money. It seems like people are always talking about money. So let me just kind of speak to that uh, and talk about why we're, we're talking about this in the midst of our vision series on who we are as a church and what it means for the gospel to change uh, everything about us. Um, a couple years ago, we started this church in my living room. And one of the things that I knew about um, just having studied and, and interacted with people in Indianapolis, as a person who was coming from the outside, I knew I was already fighting an uphill battle because, you know, I have a southern accent. I went to the University of Kentucky. That does not put you in the good graces of, uh, of Hoosiers and people who live in Indy. And so uh, having talked to a lot of people about why they go to church, why they don't go to church, I knew that money was one of those issues that people, it just makes people a little bit nervous. Um, they'd seen, you know, money abused. They'd seen institutions use money in ways that were not. Uh, according to their stated purposes, and, and there's just kind of a general sense of distrust in institutions. And so um, when we started the church, we made a self-conscious decision, myself and those that I kind of trained to teach here at SOMA, that we were not going to talk about money. For the first four years, we really didn't talk at all about money. We stayed away from the topic as much as possible. We wanted to kind of take that excuse off the table that religious people are just inherently greedy and that the only reason they're kind of doing church is uh, to pad their own pockets. And um, so one of the things we said early on is we really just want to kind of focus and make the, the central focus of our church Jesus. Now, that created a problem for us because when you talk about Jesus, you have to deal with money. And, and the more you begin to read the Gospels, you see that Jesus talks about money a lot. I mean, at a level that's really uncomfortable is one of his favorite topics. I think um, out of the 39 parables or stories uh, that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Luke, 30% of those, Jesus talks about money. He talks about money more than anything else uh, that he talks about in the Bible other than, um, other than the kingdom of God. And I would say it's kind of part of his teaching in many ways on the kingdom of God. And so we kind of came to this place a couple years ago where we said, okay, uh, we have to talk about money because we're talking about Jesus and Jesus talks about um, money. And he specifically talks about it to some groups of people. You'll never really see Jesus talk. So, so here in the context of Luke, um, Jesus is teaching to the crowds. Jesus was very attractive. He was a powerful teacher. Everywhere he went, large crowds seemed to gather around him. He taught as one, the Bible says, who had authority, kind of the spiritual authority that the religious teachers of his day didn't really have. And so, um, so he was talking to this crowd. And in this crowd were a couple of groups of people. So you'll, you'll really never see Jesus um, go to somebody who's really broken, like an oppressed person, and, and just start saying, hey, give me your money, then I'll provide us. So this, J- Jesus doesn't do like pay for play, okay? He doesn't do uh, let's talk about money, then let's talk about grace or the kingdom of God. Um, he really never talks to the broken, the impressed, the downtrodden about money. At least he never starts there. Um, so he's talking to this crowd, and who he really talks to money a lot about in this crowd are 
um, the Pharisees. So Luke 11 to 16, one of the primary audiences Jesus is addressing are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the pastors of that day. They're the religious scholars. They're the Bible teachers. They're the small group leaders. These are the, generally the people that, um, they have kind of a bad rap, but like if, if, if you were a Christian back then, many of you would have been in the Pharisee category. Many of us would have been, I certainly would have been in this fat, uh, Pharisee category. And it says in Luke 16 that the reason Jesus spoke so much to them about money was because they were lovers of money. Luke 16, they're lovers of money. And so they would baptize it with all kinds of spiritual language and God talk. But at the end of the day, they, they love money. And so for them, uh, they, they used their power, their influence in that society to accumulate status and, and money and privilege for themselves. And so he was always kind of uh, talking to them about money because he knew how much they loved it. And then he was always talking to his disciples about money. And so in this case, what we see here is Jesus talking to his disciples about money so that the crowds, those who are not Christians and those who are hyper-religious, self-righteous followers of God, could both overhear Jesus' conversation about money. Because really, for Jesus, money was never just about money. Money was always about something much deeper. And so Jesus is talking to them about money so that the crowds can hear. So if you're here and you're not a Christian... I just want you to know everything I'm talking about today um, is not aimed at convincing you to give us anything. Matter of fact, I hope you don't give our church a dime if you're here and you're not a Christian. Okay? So that sounds kind of weird for a pastor to say, but that's really what we believe. Um, Because we're not after your money. So... Don't hear me asking for your money. We are asking for something much greater. And that's, that's kind of the big thing. Every time we talk about money, we say, we don't want something from you. We want something for you. We don't want something from you. We want something for you. And so money's important because it tells us things about the condition of our hearts. Money's important. It's not the measure uh, necessarily of a life well lived, but it is one of the measures for how authentic our discipleship is. So I'm going to talk to us who are followers of Jesus about how we think about money, how we spend money from the story here in Luke chapter 12. But I don't want anything from you. Okay, this is not a campaign. This is not uh, any anything. There's, there's no thermometers. There's no chests that are going up anywhere. We simply want to have a conversation about life together. And that's, that's really what I think Jesus wants for people. He wants them to experience fullness of life. He says there's a connection between the love of money and the quality of your life. The more you love money, the lower your quality of life tends to be. There's an inverse relationship there. He, he wants people to experience vitality. He really wants people just to be free. Right? To be free. There's a bondage that comes with the quest for money and for status and for all the things. Because, again, money's never just money. Money's... Money's this constellation of things. Money represents things in our lives. It tells us what we value. It, it tells us what's most important to us. So money is tied to all kinds of symbols of status and power and security and comfort and what we hope in. And so what Jesus wants us to see is the many ways that money lies to us and deceives us and tricks us into really a subhuman quality of life. That's, that's what we want for you. And so Jesus, in this story, is going to say two negative things about the pursuit of money and then one positive thing. So Jesus is going to say two negative things about money that we need to hear, we need to listen to, and then one positive thing about money. The two negatives are don't be naive about money and the pursuit of money. And then don't be a fool with money. And then what does it look like for us to, to experience healing and liberation and freedom? He's going to say learn to be rich towards God. That fullness of life is found in what he says at the end of this passage, verse 21, being rich towards God. So let's take those in succession here in the text and talk about um, what, what happens and what money does to us and how it twists us up and distorts reality. So the first thing that Jesus says here in the story, someone in the crowd comes to him and says, teacher or rabbi, which was common in those days when they had disputes over property and inheritance. It was common for them to come and to seek out a rabbi. Rabbis were like the legal scholars. They understood the Old Testament. They understood the hundreds of laws, which was, you know, like this Byzantine structure of who gets what and how they get it. And so they were the experts. And so often they would adjudicate legal disputes between family members in the religious community. So he comes to Jesus and he says, essentially, fix my brother. That's kind of what he's saying here. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Likely what you have is a younger sibling complaining against his older sibling. Any of you are like firstborns, you know just how whiny siblings can be. You know, like, dad, he's not giving me, he's not sharing his toys. That's kind of what's happening here in those days, in the ancient days. Remember that their, their, their wealth was not liquid. It was tied up in property. It was tied up in land. It was tied up in things that couldn't be easily just sold off, right? The currency of that day was land. And so what would happen when the dad died is the elder brother became essentially the executor of the state. And so what we have here is most likely a real social justice issue. The younger brother not uh, receiving his due inheritance that the, brother, the older brother was supposed to give to him. So it's interesting, Jesus' response when he says, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Was Jesus saying they didn't care about justice, that he didn't care about uh, the money problem that was being brought to him? Well, certainly not. We see throughout the New Testament, Jesus cares deeply about justice. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But notice what he says. He launches into, he kind of does this artful dodge where he doesn't exactly answer the money question and he does what every good teacher uh, would do in those days. He, he goes for something deeper. He says, take care or be on guard um, against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So this man comes to Jesus to talk about money. And Jesus does this like, I don't know if you've ever been to like a therapist, like a really good therapist. You come to them for one problem and you're like, my marriage is on fire. My life is on fire. I have a marriage problem or I have a money problem or I have a parenting problem. And they sit down and they just like stare like into your soul. They're like, hmm. You know, and then they just do that judo flip thing and they ask you one question. And you're like, oh, I'm an idiot. How did I not see that? That's exactly what's happening here. This man comes to Jesus to talk about money, but Jesus wants to dig around in his heart to talk about his life. What, 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 what this man is believing, the lie that he's believing is that if Jesus, I mean, think about this. Jesus could have asked him anything. You've got God in the flesh and you're in this crowd. What would you ask God if you could ask God anything? There was a great song. I'm a kid of the 80s. There was a great song back in the 90s called What If God Were One of Us. Okay, Some of you are too young. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Just Google it later. Look it up on YouTube. But essentially, she says, what, what if God were one of us? What if, what if he were a slob like one of us? What if he were a stranger uh, among us trying to make his way home? Right? Like I'm going to get that, that earworm worked into your head here. You could have asked anything. And he asks him, he asks him, he asks him to solve a money problem. And what he was believing in that moment, just the psychology underneath here, is that if Jesus can fix my money problem, then he can fix my life problem. Now it's a good thing that we're like evolved and really smart and educated. We don't believe that stuff anymore. If Jesus can fix my money problem, then he can fix my life problem. And what Jesus' response tells us is. He's essentially saying back to the man, I can't fix your money until I fix your life. I can't fix your money problem until I fix your life problem. He's saying, man, I didn't come to be an arbitrator. That word arbitrator is fascinating. It's a word that means to divide. He says, I didn't come to just divide your money and to fix your money problems. Now, what's interesting is later on in this chapter, in chapter 12, towards the end of the chapter, he actually says the opposite. He said, I've come to divide. I've come to set your life on fire. I've come to set the world on fire to divide your heart, to divide your family, to divide your life. He says, I've come to divide, but not just divide your money. You've come to me because you think you need your inheritance divided, but what you actually needed is your heart divided. And Jesus is saying, even if I fixed your money problem, it wouldn't fix your life. Like, have you ever kind of believed that lie? Like, if I could, you know, here's how we kind of talk. It's never like, God, you come to God. God, I don't want you to double my net worth. God, I just want to be like a multimillionaire. It's usually something along the lines of like, I just need another 10%. Like, I'm, everybody's like always 20% behind, 10 to 20%. If I could just get another 20%, another 30%. Um, and we just believe, and then what happens, you get the 20%. Right. And then like, well, I just need a little bit more. And, and we just keep pushing uh, the ball, moving the ball down the field. Jesus is saying, even if I fixed your money problem, even if I did it exactly right and just, it wouldn't 
fix your life because the problem in the first place, your real problem is how you're defining life in the first place. You see the connection here between money and life? That word life there, we, we talk about this a lot at Soma. There's two words for life in the New Testament. One is bios. And that's just kind of like existence. That's like, hey, you're conscious. Congratulations. You know, you woke up this morning. That, like some of us live life just on a very minimal kind of plane of existence. We're just existing. We're surviving. Then there's this other great word called zoe. And zoe is fullness of life. It's eternal life. When Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and life abundant. It's the abundant, rich life that God has for us. It's eternal life with an eternal God. It's fullness of joy. It's true happiness. It's true satisfaction. And that's what he's saying here. He says, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Literally, it's life does not exist in your possessions. Your real problem, he says, is how you're defining life in the first place. You think that living is possessing. You think that living is acquiring. And, like, we're all, like, too smart to say this out loud. Like, nobody's going to post this on Twitter. Nobody's going to put this out on their Instagram. I believe, you know, my life philosophy is living. I mean, some of us are narcissistic enough to do that and egotistical enough to do that. But, like, most of us would never admit it out loud. But the reality is we equate living with possessing. And that's why we live the way that we live. It's why we make the decisions that we make or don't make. It's why we get into the relationships we get in or don't get in. It's why we choose the career path that we choose or don't choose. We've bought into this lie. And what Jesus says is pay attention. Your life, fullness of life, is not found in possessing stuff. Because what happens when you slide into that narrative of life is that you forget that, yes, you make money, but money also makes you. You make money, but money also makes you. You possess things, but they also possess you. And he says to this man, you're so concerned about your inheritance because you think if we can fix the inheritance issue, then you'll have true life. And he said, I'm telling you, your inheritance is about to take your life. Your pursuit of this issue is the thing that could undermine the very quality of life that I have come to give you. A life of freedom, a life of vitality, a life where you are fulfilling the purpose for which you were created. And so what happens when we get into this and we're naive about the power of money, we underestimate the power that money has in our lives, is that we redefine the struggle. You know what I'm talking about? The struggle. We redefine the struggle. We reduce life to um, a vision of life. The struggle is an economic struggle. So, like, what's your greatest problem? If I could, if I could you know, solve your greatest problem right now, you would pro- most of us would say it's probably financial. Like, what is the thing you're fighting most about with your spouse? What's that thing you're fighting most about for in your business, in the marketplace? What's that thing that you're, like, leveraging hundreds of thousands of dollars of collegiate debt to get to? Like, it's, it seems like a money problem. We define it primarily in economic terms. We become functional Marxists, right? Like Karl Marx's opening declaration, the Communist Manifesto, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. And that's partly true. There's certainly class struggle. There's certainly a reality there that many of the problems in our world, in our society, stem from economic issues. But Jesus says there's something much deeper here. You've made the acquisition of wealth. Your end goal. The ultimate thing that drives how you think about life. There's a fatal flaw in your life vision, he says. What happens is the power of that is it begins to rip and tear the fabric of your life. You weren't designed to be an acquisitional creature merely. You weren't designed just as an economic being who could be reduced to dollar signs. You're an emotional being. You're a spiritual being. You're a relational being. And so when we make that one dimension of our lives the most important thing, when the struggle becomes that, and we see all of our problems and all of our opportunities merely in economic lenses, it begins to tear apart the fabric of our life. And here's what we begin to do. Use God to get to what we really believe is fullness of life. So on a religious domain, we, we like this man, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, fix my money problem. That's why some of us are in church this morning. My life is on fire financially. I might as well go to church and see if I could just pray. 
We use God to get to life. And yet what Jesus is telling this man is, you're using me to get to life. I'm telling you, I've come to be your life. I've come to be your capital. I've come to be your... I mean, think about all the language that we use with financial stuff. Securities. We use, we use words like safety. We use all of these words that are just fraught with salvation terms. We use God, and then we begin to compete with others. When we have a scarcity mindset, and we think that life consists in what we possess, then you become my rival. Then I see ter- my life in terms of winners and losers, right? Like, and I'm going to get mine, because this life is all there is, so I have to cling, I have to clutch, I have to grasp. Because everything, fe- doesn't it feel like financially frail all the time? Like, is there anybody in the room that would say, I feel so strong financially. I have exactly what I need. I have more than enough. I feel strong. Now, I think most of us, if we're honest, we feel fragile. I mean, the statistics certainly bear it out, right? There's a, a great article in The Atlantic a couple years ago where they did, the American Psychological Association did a study and said, what's your number one stressor in life? What's the thing that causes you most fear, most anxiety, keeps you up at night, causes the majority of your conflicts? And far and away, it's our financial position. Because 60% of Americans couldn't come up with $400 if they had to in an emergency. 60%. And so we begin to compete with others. It tears apart families like it's doing in this case. It begins to disrupt intimacy in our core relationships. It creates all kinds of anxiety. And the challenge is it's so hard to see it. I mean, that's what makes pinpointing this. That's why there's a naivete to this for many of us. It's so hard. And that's why Jesus says... Take care. Watch out. Be on guard. Now what's fascinating is Jesus doesn't tell us to be on guard about many things in the New Testament. Like the big sins that we kind of talk about in the church. Like Jesus doesn't say, watch out for adultery. Why is that? Like you know if you're committing adultery, you're either doing it or you're not. He doesn't say, watch out for, um, you know, uh, watch out and make sure that you're not uh, abusing people. Well, you're, you're either doing it or you're not. Watch out for pornography. No, you know when you're doing it or you're not. But with greed, it's so much harder to see. How do you know if you're being greedy? How do you know if you're rich? How do you know if you're affluent? When was the la- Let me just ask you a question. This all. When was the last time you walked into, again, believers here, Christians, you walked into a discipleship environment and you just, you know, like we love authenticity in the church, except when it, when it hurts. We like to be selectively authentic so that people kind of know we have a past and kind of know we're broken, but we don't know really how broken we are. When was the last time you went into a discipleship environment and said, I am a raging, flaming, greedy capitalist. I love making money. I wish all of you would just, you know, make less money so that I can make more money. I mean, we don't, we don't say, when was the last time you confessed greed? As a pastor, people come to me all the time confessing a number of crazy sins. You know what I have yet to have one person, don't be the smart like the thing comes because you'll ruin my illustration for next time, but I have yet to have one person who's come to me and said, I am greedy, I need help. It's the air that we breathe. And it's so hard in America when we have what philosopher Alan de Baton in his book Status Anxiety calls the, the, the constant siren or temptation of the reference group. You know, when you know what the reference group is? Like in old times, I mean, I think even when I was growing up, um, you kind of assumed what people who had more money than you thought or did or whatever, but you really didn't know because you didn't have a window into their, into their world. Social media makes this so hard because now it's all piped into your phone all the time. You're con- so what a reference group is, is like, I'm a UK grad, right? Um, I'm a pastor. I'm not going to choose somebody who's a Harvard grad and who's like a you know, multi-billionaire tycoon to compare myself against. My benchmark is going to be somebody who's in my economic bracket with similar gifts, similar intellectual. So what you do is you tend to look around you and size up the groups that you're in. And then you kind of sort yourself based on where you kind of fall in the middle. So I like to be around people a little less smart than me so I can feel good, but not too smart because then I'll feel stupid, right? I like to be around people who have a little bit less education than me and maybe a little bit more education than me, but not too much education. People who make a little bit less than me. and a li- look, I mean, just think about your life and how much, like, think about your Instagram feed, your Facebook page. 
And, and what happens in the reference group is then we, we, we compare ourselves constantly against other people. And what begins to happen is you begin to see somebody a little bit ahead of you, even though both of you probably make more than um, 99% of anybody in world history, which would be like $15,000 a year. And you look to the person to the right, and they make 30, and it's like, well, they're the rich one. They're the one, obviously, Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to my neighbor. He's talking to my parents. Right? That, I don't know if that resonates for anybody. But, like, everybody else thinks everybody else is rich. Everybody thinks somebody else is the affluent one. How do we read ourselves into the story? Many of us, we want to be the ones that are, I mean, think about the emotions in the story here. We want to be the ones shaking our fists at the man. But the reality is, historically speaking, we are the man. Juliet Shore, in her book, The Overspent American, says only one-third of American households that make more than $100,000 a year agree with this statement. I can afford to buy everything I really need. Think about that. Two-thirds of Americans who make over $100,000 a year would say, I don't have everything I need to buy what I need in life. So it's hard. It's hard to know when we're being greedy. It's hard to see it. It's so subtle, this sickness. And Jesus says, don't be naive. Don't assume that you don't struggle with greed. Second thing he says is, don't be a fool. And tells this story, he goes on to tell this story about a rich man, the land of a rich man. So a guy who was already wealthy, probably part of the aristocracy. It's just a made-up story. It's a parable. But he says the land of a rich man produced plentifully, so he has a bumper crop. And you can imagine the, the outrage. I don't know if you guys, but it feels that way sometimes when you're struggling financially. Like the people that already have something end up like getting a windfall. It's like, oh, my parents just you know, uh, and gave me this inheritance and it's awesome and life's great and hashtag blessed and all the stupid things that we do online with that, right? Like, and, and it's just like, it feels like those who are frail and don't have anything continue to deteriorate and those who have a little bit continue to prosper. So this is what's happening here. Jesus is intentionally provoking this crowd. And he thought to himself, the rich man, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store and keep, circle this word, all. I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, so he's doing some counseling, some therapy to his heart here, self or soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. See, in the story, the problem is not wealth creation. The problem is what the man does with his wealth once he has it. It's not bad, biblically speaking, to make money. You can, you can be wealthy and be righteous in the Bible. You think about Abraham, right? There are people in the Bible that are lauded as men after God's own heart, David, who were kings and who had a high you know, net worth, so to speak. So you can be righteous and be wealthy. You can be poor and be unrighteous. So the issue is not how much do you make or, or uh, what's your you know, 401k look like. The question is what are you doing with it once you've acquired it? The condemnation here comes for building bigger barns, not for having wealth in the first place. And what we see here in the story is that there's different faces of greed. Greed looks different ways. We tend to think of greed um, only one particular way. Like there's two ways to be a fool. This idea of being a fool um, is a really strong word. I don't know of anywhere else in the New Testament where God calls somebody a fool. I mean, it's a really, really rare thing that God would look somebody in the face and say you're a fool. The idea of a fool, Psalm 19.1, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. So to be a fool has very little to do with your IQ. You can be really smart and be a fool. You can, be a low, you can have a low IQ or a low EQ and be really wise. The issue is a fool is out of touch with the grain of the universe. The fool is out of touch with reality. That's what money does. Money makes us fools because it disorients us. It distorts reality. It distorts reality. So to be a fool is to be a person who lives without God as their ultimate reference point. Who says this life is all there is, so I've got to get mine. That's the heart of being a fool. So there's two ways to be a fool with our money. 
One is excessive consumption. And we kind of know, I think, as, as Christians, that's wrong. That's easier to spot a person who's a materialist, a person who kind of uh, is living that kind of hashtag blessed life. It's like I'm basically doing what the world's doing, except I'm using spiritual language. You know, and we kind of trumpet and parade and boast about all the, the good things that God's been so great. And he's just blessed me. Hashtag double hashtag blessed life and live like no one else so you can live like no one else. I mean, these ways that we kind of baptize consumerism and materialism within the Christian world. Like we do this, right? Like Christians, we, we see the excessive consumption. And that's easy to spot. But what we see here in the heart of this man is something that's very difficult to spot for many of us. It's excessive comfort. Excessive comfort. He says, I have, I have wealth, but I need bigger barns. I need a bigger warehouse to store all this. God's been so good. So what I'm going to do is store it up. And what we see revealed in his heart here is a man who's looking to his wealth to be his comfort. When he looks out into the future of a dangerous, uncertain, broken world, he says, the one security that I have is my money. If I just make enough money, then I'll be okay. That's, that's, that's called making money and wealth your God. Right? Because you look to her and you use, you use very redemptive terminology. You trust in it. You place your hope in it. It's a security for you. It's a buffer against the vicissitudes of life. The problem wasn't this, this guy was saving. I mean, the Proverbs certainly talks about the need to save. Look to the ant, you sluggard. Follow his ways. He gathers in one season. He saves up for the for the, uh, the, the tough times, the difficult times. The problem is, is that he tried to save it all. Built bigger barns because he wanted to save and store all of his grains and all of his goods. It's so easy to be a fool with our money. To get fooled and to be a fool. To live as if there's no eternal God and no eternal life. To have our reality so distorted that we start to think... I've got to grasp after this because if I don't, then things are going to be difficult. And ultimately, the Bible says this is foolish. This, this, this pursuit of wealth, this pursuit of wealth as our comfort, as our security, is the thing that's going to make us okay, that's going to buffer us against the difficulties of life. It's foolish because, one, we can't predict the future. He says, fool, this very night your soul is going to be required of you. You've wasted all this time dreaming about and worrying about and selling your soul, literally destroying your soul, competing with other people to get to the top of the heap only to realize. I mean, there's been lots of movies written about this, right? Like only to realize that at any moment your life could be over. You cannot predict the future. You cannot. Nobody predicted 2008. You, you can't predict or outwit cancer. It comes for, all, for a lot of us. You can't mitigate a divorce. Like these things, you don't know what's going to happen in your life. And yet we so badly want to control our future. At the end of the day, that's what's behind so much of our fear. So much of our anxiety is if I can just get this big nest egg, then I can be in control. And so we have these formulas and we have these algorithms and we reverse engineer our nest eggs. And then I think God up in heaven is kind of like laughing a little bit saying, really? Like, you know what um, trying to predict the future was called in the Old Testament? Witchcraft. Divination. I think I know what the future holds, therefore I'm going to try to control it. But he says, man, you can't predict the future and you can't pass it on. You can't pass it on. Even if you make all that money, you're going to die. Somebody else is going to pick it up and run the relay for you. Like, Who's that going to be? Your kids? Like, I don't know if any of you have adult children, but like, you really trust them? Most inheritances are gone by the second generation, regardless of size. Statistical fact. You can't take it with you. You're going to die. The, the, the banks are going to break down. Like, all these things we're trusting. And he says, it's foolish to live as if this life is all there is. And so we come to what I just call the fool's paradox. The fool's paradox is simply this. We and overly concerning ourselves with avoiding financial poverty create a different kind of poverty in our lives, a soul poverty. Overly concerning ourselves, worry, anxiety, control, comfort, security, all that it takes to like maintain strong financial standing, that pursuit for financial prosperity and financial buffering creates a poverty of the soul. 
It warps your soul. It makes you anxious. It makes you worry. All the things that Jesus is going to talk about here, we're not going to go into in the next little passage there. The anxiety, the fear, it it, it warps your soul. It makes you an anxious person. It isolates you relationally. It creates a relational poverty. I haven't spent a lot of time with with affluent people uh, in uh, former ministries and here at Indianapolis. Man, wealthy people are some of the loneliest people on the planet. Everybody wants something from them. You know, you, the things you have to do to get and acquire lots of money oftentimes require you to step on other people or step around other people or kind of isolate yourself and insulate yourself from people. And there's a, a poverty there, a poverty of the soul that can be just as damaging as material poverty. And the more that we fret, the more that we worry, the more we damage our souls and our hearts. So Jesus says, don't do that. Don't be naive. And don't be a fool. You think you've got a money problem. You have a life problem. So what does it look like for us to experience healing? I mean, Jesus has to come in and do some serious surgery here on this man's heart. He's after this man's heart. He's trying to shake him up and say, hey, watch out. Watch out for the trap of greed. And the answer, he says, is to be rich towards God. To learn to be rich towards God. To be a community more focused on emptying our barns and opening our barns than building bigger barns. What would it look like for us to be that kind of community here at Soma? A community that is focused on emptying our barns instead of building bigger barns. A community that sees that all that we've been given, we've not been given for ourselves, but for the good of others. We've been given by God for the good of other people. Again, it's not about how much you make. What do you do with what you make? And, and here's my conviction for us and why this is so important to flourishing and our vision as a church to see the gospel change everything. Because I, I believe that our city will never taste and see that God is good. Like God is a generous God. He is a gracious God. He's, he has set us up with an internal inheritance, First Peter says. But our city will never see and taste the experience or never experience the generosity of God until they see it in the hearts and lives of his people. I mean, why would they go after a God who seems to be just baptizing their own ambitions? That's that's not compelling. It's not going to attract anybody for them to see us living the same way that they live. When when a world sees a, a generous people who are living in the generosity of a God who has set us up, who has promised us glory and eternity and all the security that we could ever want and long for, that will be, I'm, I believe that will be a compelling witness. And that's what we've seen historically in the great movements and spiritual awakenings of the church when people live generous lives. It was one of the things that marked the early church and the movement of God in the Roman Empire that swept through the Roman Empire like a contagion. They couldn't believe how liberal how promiscuous the Christians were with their money. They weren't promiscuous with their bodies. They were crazy promiscuous with their money. We are in this this place as uh, a church, a big C church, where we're we're about to experience the largest wealth transfer in the history of the West. Something like $5 trillion is about to pass hands from one generation of Christians to another. Trillions of dollars. And I believe that in order for us to live into this vision that God has for us, we have to see ourselves in the story the right way. We are not the crowds. We are the rich fools. We are the rich fools. Now, there's a lot of shame in being able to to talk about this, but we have to kind of own this. If we're going to do the deep work of repentance and live more hopeful lives, we have to see that we are the rich. Right? Again, if you make more than ten dollars or $15,000 a year, you're in the 1% historically of people who've ever lived on this planet. We are the wealthiest generation in human history in so many different ways. And so the more that we can just own it and say, you know what, we are wealthy. We are affluent. We do experience financial privileges that are unprecedented. And that brothers and sisters are on the road. I had, a, I had uh, coffee the other day with a brother who just moved here from Ghana. Really sweet Man, and we were talking about going to seminary and the parallels between Africa and Ghana and, and here. 
And uh, he was describing to me his journey, grew up as a farmer, and then uh, to, in order to go to seminary, he was studying chemistry and left chemistry. He's a brilliant guy, he wanted to be a scientist, to become a pastor. In the first year of his seminary experience, he didn't have any money, he slept outside, and he lived on $100 a month to put himself, put himself through seminary. I mean, that's, like, that's, that's unimaginable for me. That's unimaginable for many of us to think about that kind of poverty. And so we have to just start by acknowledging we are wealthy. Not only materially, but spiritually. God has poured his blessings into our lives. And so we have been given this inheritance. And so what does the Bible teach us about what it means to be rich towards God? Let me just give you a couple quick application points and we'll go to communion. First, I think we need to stop and listen. Stop and listen. Jesus says in verse 22 to his disciples, Therefore, because we have this proclivity and this tendency to move towards greed, to, to be unaware of the many ways that greed has a grip on us as the people of God. He says, therefore I tell you, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. What you will eat, about your body, about what you, you will put on. Life, there's that word again, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Stop and listen. Money tells a story. It's telling a story of our hearts. It's telling a story about what we value, what we treasure, what we delight in, what we're afraid of. I mean, stop and pay attention. Most of us are living such hurried, busy lives that we don't even stop to ask the question, why am I freaking out about my money? Why am I so ashamed to talk about it? I mean, everybody doesn't have to know what you make, but somebody probably needs to know what you make. There needs to be some accountability, some transparency among God's people to say, hey, am I doing this right? I don't know. Am I doing this right? Is, is like $500,000 of school debt and that's not hypothetical? Is that like, is that, is that, the, is that the good life? Right? Like, I, I'm making this, I feel ashamed because I make over $100,000. You might say to yourself, like, is that okay? Is, that, is a Christian allowed to make that? Uh, you know, I may, like, we just need to stop and pay attention and say, what story is money telling? Of our hearts. Where am I afraid? Where am I anxious? Where am I fearful? Where am I being controlling? What if we assumed greed instead of assuming that we're not greedy? What if we just flip the script? Like we tend to assume I'm not a greedy person, right? Like those are the greedy people over there. They're in Washington. They're, you know, in downtown Indianapolis. We're not the greedy people. What if we flip that paradigm and begin to assume that we are the greedy ones? And then we begin to ask hard questions and invite a community of people to ask those hard questions. To say, hey, what would it look like for me to not build bigger barns? I don't know that I have an answer. There's a broad spectrum of application in here. But it starts with stopping, slowing down and listening, asking good questions, inviting community into that space to say, hey, man, I am really struggling with my finances. I just need to talk with somebody about this. What would it look like for me to set caps for how much I spend and how much I save? So that I can open up my barns instead of always feeling this constant upward pressure to have to build a little bit bigger barn, a little bit bigger barn, a little bit bigger barn. And then all of a sudden I look around and I think, man, what's happened to me? I'm a shell of the person that I longed to be when I was 25 and I was a new Christian. So we stop and we listen. We receive and we trust. We receive and we trust. You'll never be generous until you've experienced the generosity of God. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Jesus who was the wealthiest human being. Can we all agree? Jesus was the wealthiest human being to ever live. I think he lived in a pretty nice zip code in heaven, right? Like Jesus was the wealthiest man to ever live. That man, with all of his wealth and all of his privilege, it says in 2 Corinthians 8, Jesus became poor so that we could become rich. That is the paradigm for the kingdom life. We become poor so others become rich. God became poor so that we could inherit his glory, his love, his affirmation, the security. And when we don't, trust him when we worry we are essentially not trusting right every time i freak out about my money i'm saying god i don't trust you can we just acknowledge that every time i worry god i don't know if you're going to provide for me god if i give this to this person i mean i am like a control freak my wife is a generous person just by nature she would give all of our savings away to any homeless person in the city of Indianapolis if they asked on the right day that makes me nervous why because i don't trust god I don't trust God. God, if we give this away, then what about me? What about my kids? The 
this is the rhythm of the kingdom life, learning to receive and learning to trust God, that he will provide for us. As we open the barns, he will give us exactly what we need for today. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. God, give us today our daily bread. God, give me exactly what I need emotionally, physically, financially, spiritually. Today has enough of its own problems. God, would you just give me enough for today? And then we, we give generously. And we enjoy the life that God has for us. Fear not, little flock, verse 32, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Because he's given you the kingdom, because he's given you internal wealth, now you can be generous to other people. Then he says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide as I've provided for you, so you go and do likewise. Use your money to invest in the only thing that's going to last. The greatest ROI on the planet, Luke 16 says, is people. Invest your money to make heavenly relationships. Cast your bread upon the waters and it will come back to you. He's saying, create a a community. Don't isolate yourself with your money. Create a community with your money of people who when you get to heaven one day will be there because you bless them with the generosity of God. That's an amazing promise. I'm going to get to hang out in eternity with every single person that God, because he's been generous to me, I've been generous. I will be in heaven one day meeting people who have benefited from that generosity. Start where you are with what you have. Maybe it's 1%. Maybe it's 2%. I don't know what that is, but start where you are with what you have. I think the Bible calls us to make 10%, just very practically, our baseline. I don't think it's a law. I don't think you see that in the New Testament. It never says thou shalt give 10%. But we, we need to step back and look at the pattern of Scripture and say if in the Old Testament they were given, probably is actually more likely about 225 to 25% of their wealth back to God. How much more under grace, I mean that's under law, how much more under grace should we be aspiring towards to be a generous people because God has lavishly blessed us? But maybe we make 10% a baseline. Not a law, not a limit. We just make that a baseline. And we say, what would it look like for me over the course of the next couple of years to move towards 10%? And here's the lie that you're going to tell yourself. Well, when I make more money, then I'll give more. Okay, everybody's laughing. Everybody like over 30 is laughing because you know that's not true. I became a Christian when I was a teenager. And as a college student, I made a commitment to God. God, I am going to give 10% no matter how much it hurts because 10% of nothing is nothing. Okay, like 10% of $10,000 is $1,000 a year. It doesn't feel like it hurts a whole lot. But I tell you what, it hurts a lot more now as a father of four kids to, 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 to electronically shoot that off every month and then to, to give as the Lord leads uh, our family. It hurts. But you know what? The statistics say the more you make, the less you give. Just statistically speaking, the more you make, the less you give. And then enjoy the life God's given you. With a clear conscience. Enjoy the life God's given you. Stop freaking out about your money. Enjoy the gift that God has given you of life. Give generously because God has given generously to you. Save enough so that you can take care of the things that are right in front of you. But then live. Don't forget to live. Don't forget to have fun. Don't forget to eat and drink and be merry because the kingdom of God is coming. Not, not as a fool who says, I'm going to live my life to eat, drink, and be merry but as one who's been freed up to eat, drink, and be merry because God has so filled me with his joy and his happiness. Now I can live with a clear conscience and not always be worrying, you know, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? That's religion. Am I doing enough? And God says, I've done it all. I've done it all. You be generous. You give. You sell your possessions. Give to the poor. You be rich towards God and I will take care of you. Let's go to communion. As we go to communion, let's ask ourselves those questions. If we are those who are, I love this language in the Psalms I was reading this week, we are God's treasured ones. We are his treasured ones, deeply loved by our Father. He calls us his little flock. It's like he's patting us on the head saying, oh, that's cute. You little kids who are freaking out about this little money. I own everything. I've set you up. I will not fail you. I will not abandon you. Trust me. Those of us who call Jesus our treasure, let's go all in. Let's stop worrying about our future. Let's stop trying to control and let's let go. Let's be rich towards God. Let's ask ourselves, where are those areas where I'm not trusting? Where are those areas where I'm freaking out? Where are the areas where I need to surrender? Not just my money. He's not concerned first with your money. He wants your heart. 
So if he gets a hold of your heart, everything else will be easy. Everything else. I promise you, if God has your heart, everything else will be easy. So give him your heart. Let's give him our heart. Let's take some time to repent. Let's take some time to turn away from all the lies that we've believed about money and what it can do and what it can't do for us. And let's reaffirm our trust in God. Let's ask God to fill us with his glory, to fill us with his love, and to make us a generous people. If you're here and you're not a Christian, which is to say that Jesus is not your treasure, we want you to stay in your seat while we take communion. This is a family meal to be shared by those who are learning what it means to be rich towards God as God has been rich towards us. But we want to invite you. If you want to become a Christian, we'd love for you to put your faith, to put your trust in Jesus. And maybe, maybe for you, money's been a smokescreen. Maybe it's been the reason why you tell everybody that you're not a Christian. But the real issue is not a money issue. It's a heart issue. And so maybe for you, learning the difference between those and learning to give him your heart and stop worrying about uh, what happened or didn't happen with money in the past maybe becomes a, a pathway to freedom for you. And so I'm going to pray for us and ask God's help to make us this kind of community. And then we'll take communion. We have stations in the front, stations in the back. Take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup. And be reminded that God loves you. He is for you. And he is inviting you to experience fullness of life as you think about your money and your wealth today. God, thank you so much for the gift of grace. God, we thank you that though we are in some senses wealthier than anybody who's ever lived as a, as a community, as a society, on a spectrum, God, we know there's relative poverty, there's relative wealth. But God, historically speaking, we are rich, certainly are spiritually rich. God, you have poured out your blessings on us. Help us to not be naive about the power of money to distort our realities. Help us to not be fools, to live as if there is no eternity, as if there is no God. God, as if, if you are not good and true and beautiful and do not have a bigger vision for our lives than the poverty that we often walk in by freaking out about our money. God, help us to become a community that doesn't build bigger barns, but together is learning humbly and honestly and transparently and with bold faith what it means for us to not build bigger barns for our glory, but God, to empty our barns for your glory, to empty our barns to help those that you've placed around us, that you've entrusted to our care. God, you have not given us anything that should not be on the table to be shared with others. God, you... You are using us as your people. You are caring for us as your children. You are using us to push back darkness and poverty in our world. And God, that will only come as we learn to be rich towards you. So God, help us. Help us see our greed. Help us see our blindness. God, lead us to a deeper repentance as a people and a deeper commitment to live more hopefully and with more bold faith in the future as it pertains to our wealth. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.